2: All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly.
3: Good morning. This is Ben and Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber and Business Report broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of Silicon Beach, downtown Santa Monica. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today. Um, We have with us Tom Gillespie, and he is a principal researcher at the Microsoft Research Group which is part of the social media collective research group and but more importantly he's the author of custodians of the internet platforms content moderation and the hidden decisions that shape social media so he violates the number one rule of the wizard of oz and pay no attention to the man behind the curtain um tarleton gives us a a view of what is behind the curtain of our platforms and um a new york times critic called it a timely and important book gillespie definitely reveals the factors that shape social media platforms and thus our world clear-eyed and incisive a must read for anyone interested in the influence of platforms the forces that structure this influence and crucially how to move forward so thank you for joining us tom
4: yeah my pleasure thank you for having me
3: um this a a, just quick questions on, on your background um the Microsoft Research New England and the Social Media Collective, can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm an academic. Uh, I worked at Cornell University for 11 years, got tenure there. Uh, and in 2014, I switched over to Microsoft Research. Uh, they have a sort of quasi-independent research group. It's got a number of labs. The large ones in Redmond, not surprisingly. I'm in the one in the Boston area in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
0: Those and well,
4: yeah, exactly. Go socks. And the idea was, uh, in the spirit of kind of uh, you know Xerox Park and IBM Research, to have a, a group that does academic research that's independent of whatever products are going on. It includes a lot of computer scientists, but also includes a group of us who are social scientists, sociologists, anthropologists, communication and media scholars. That's my group, mm-hmm. um, and we like to think about kind of the implications of computing for the larger public.
3: And that's, so that's, part of, that's what the Social Media Collective does?
4: That's the Social Media Collective. That's about five of us, sort of give or take. Uh, and we have a number of research projects that are, are kind of our study of that question.
3: And so this book, Custodians of the Internet, came out of your research? It did, yeah. It was research that I started while I was at Cornell
4: and then finished the book while I was here. Uh, and it's been my project I've been thinking about for a number of years
3: now. And it, the book, it, it's an interesting book, and with, but... It's maybe when you wrote it, you thought, well, you know, a lot of people aren't focusing on moderation, but it seems very much in the news today. You have um, Apple CEO saying, you know, tech platforms should should not allow hate speech on the Internet. You have uh, an alt right um, commentator um, handcuffing herself to Twitter's New York offices because she was banned. Uh, It's it's really quite in the news.
4: Yeah, it's definitely reached a boiling point. I proposed this book to Yale back in 2010, and you're right. At the time, I thought it was going to be a book that said, you wouldn't know it, but platforms actually engage in moderation, and they do it all the time. And obviously, during the time I was researching it, that was becoming more and more visible. The interesting thing to me is that this has always been a question. So we've been, depending on when you tuned in into the public debate, it may seem like this is a a two-year-old question since the election or a four-year-old question since kind of the questions about uh, harassment of women and Gamergate. But even at the very start, the platforms were dealing with um, both uh, content that they were troubled with and also criticism about how they handled it. Uh, It's just that the stakes have changed and the scope has changed for sure.
3: And one point you make in the book is we we always have moderation, in in any f- platform or forum. Um, you know, I suspect even if you go to a speaker's corner in Hyde Park, you know that famous park park in London where people just kind of literally get in the soapbox, and you know pontificate on whatever topic they they really want to talk about. I imagine there's there's even rules for that.
4: Yeah, I think that. Um we often get hung up on uh, a set of kind of uh, ideal extremes when we talk about sort of unfettered speech. Um, and, and the reality is that, yes, we have principles about how speech should be should be treated, but in the actual circulation of information, whether that's in social media or the larger web or television or radio or print... Uh, we've always struggled with this tension between two things. One is how do you allow kind of a vibrant range of speech, but also have some kind of parameters that both sort of avoid offense and illegality, but also sort of uh, maintain the conversation. And with that, a tension about how do you allow speech, but also provide some sort of business model. And so we've always had private intermediaries, whether it's you know, a television network or Facebook, um, working out how they manage both to contain the conversation uh, for their own business, contain the conversation for the health of the conversation and uh, encourage as much participation as possible.
3: So you start your book uh, with an interesting exercise of moderation. And that involves Facebook's banning the image, um, the terror of war, the famous uh, image of the victims of napalm in Vietnam, which includes one woman, you know, child actually, who's who's naked mm-hmm. because of the you know her clothes were burned off, and right. uh, it it was a very vivid and I'm assuming I'm pretty sure a Pulitzer Prize winning photo. Yes. Uh, and it's during the war and and so but since it had it literally has nudity um facebook banned the distribution of it and uh, tell us about how that came about
4: yeah i mean i start with that example because it, it was a flashpoint in the conversation today about um the removal of content facebook took down the photo after it had been posted by a norwegian journalist who had written an article about Images that had changed the face of warfare, and this was uh, not surprisingly one of the photos that he included And there was then sort of a dust-up where the Norwegian newspapers wrote editorials uh, Sort of declaiming Facebook's power Uh, The Prime Minister of Norway posted the photo as a kind of protest she had it taken down and eventually Facebook after a couple of days and some pretty bad press relented and, and Said it was okay to post the photo i, I use it as an example because um, a lot of the press coverage was sort of saying look at facebook making this very sort of either boneheaded decision or self protecting decision or automatic decision and and the reality is twofold one is that facebook had considered this image before had even included it in a training document recognizing that it's a hard image and trying to draw this conclusion that said, because it includes child nudity, they should remove it. Obviously, lots of people disagreed with that. But the other reason to bring it up is this was not an uncontroversial photo in 1972. The Associated Press almost didn't send it. Uh, When they sent it out to the news wires, they included a version that was airbrushed. Uh, Many newspapers didn't print it. uh, And many readers wrote into their local papers and said they were deeply offended by it. So That's not to say that Facebook made the right decision or the wrong decision. The point is that we're in this moment where Facebook is making the same kinds of decisions that the Associated Press and the New York Times and each paper was making. And they're making it around images that really are contested, like really do test the lines about how we think about what should circulate in the public eye. That image is does include nudity. It includes graphic suffering. It's also incredibly important historically, and it's been right. legitimated. So we're weighing some pretty difficult and competing values here, or in this case, Facebook is, and that may be so, kind of the core of the problem.
3: Two interesting aspects about the picture in, in, in its, at the time it was taken. You know, one is ask yourself how AP would have treated that if that was a European mm. child. You know, would they have been uh, more squeamish about the nudity of of someone of their own culture as opposed to uh, another culture? Uh, But secondly, that the child who's the feet, you know, the the center of several children, but the Mm -hmm. child whose clothes are burned off. She recently came to Los Angeles for um, the L.A. Press Club Awards for the um, honor the photographer. They were Mm -hmm. reunited just a few years ago. And and she's glad he took the picture, uh, because of the power of it.
4: Right, right. And 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 I think I mean those are all really important questions. And it's hard for us to know how that image would have um, would have played if it were a different uh, you know nationality or a different setting. I think that's exactly the kind of question that highlights how incredibly difficult this issue is. What Facebook and other platforms are doing, of course, is that they are. Um, Making a, a kind of aggregate decision, not whether a news photographer should take a photo, but what happens when either the producer or more often readers and interested parties circulate and recirculate that image. And they're trying to weigh and trying to balance this tension between wanting the platform to be an environment for news, an environment for engaging content, maybe, um, you know, uh, provocative content, and setting this set of guidelines that says it's the platform's job to set the bounds of what belongs there. And that's a um, a difficult balance, maybe an untenable one, and yet all the platforms do it.
3: And you cited another example in terms of, you know, the, the quandaries of, platforms like Facebook faces, and that's breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Somehow you you can show a male breast, but you can't show a female breast.
4: Yeah, in fact, um, yesterday, uh, Tumblr made an announcement. Tumblr has long um, had a policy where they accepted pornography. You had to sort of indicate that your particular blog was circulating pornography and that would help people not find it, but they just made a big change and said that they would no longer have uh, pornography or nudity of any kind with the classic exceptions, right? male nipples are all right, female nipples are not, (laughs) an exception for breastfeeding, exception for birth photos. And these are all like, these may sound random, but in some ways they are the result of kind of a 10 year long debate that focused on Facebook particularly, but not exclusively. Um, Raising this question raised largely by um, mothers who are posting photos of breastfeeding, thought of that as a very sort of powerful and natural and intimate thing to show. And, of course, running afoul of a rule that says no nudity. And it took years. There were protests. There were debates. There were changes to the rules. Um, and now we've got this kind of funny line that says breastfeeding is an exception to the nudity rule. If a nipple is exposed, that makes it too much. Women's nipples are different than men's nipples. And
3: and this can... The last I checked, men don't breastfeed.
4: <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, there was a really great uh, kind of um, tongue-in-cheek... Uh, uh, intervention that someone did in about 2014 where they they made a nice close-up picture of a male nipple and drew the sort of cutout lines and said, put this male nipple over the pictures with women's nipples on them and see what happens, right? Um, this can be comical, but of course, these are the very same lines that we draw you in draw, public yeah. sometimes about what we find acceptable and are exactly the lines that we debate about whether whose values those are and what happens when there are reasonable.
3: You highlight why that is important. You know, for women, people's, it, there was a recent story here, like in LA, a woman was breastfeeding in a mall and people were coming up to her saying, that's disgusting. How could you do that? And, um, you know, for them to get acceptance, to be able to do what is very natural, uh, you know, having it on a platform like Facebook is a way to build awareness and, and let people get comfortable with that. And uh, so it is important, it does have significance even outside the platform.
4: Right, and the, and the flip side was that for many of the women who were very angry at Facebook's decision, the opposite is true. Right, if Facebook establishes a rule that excludes it, that has like an enormous footprint on this ongoing debate. Right, it, it normalizes the notion that it's not normal. Right, so these right. are can these are contested issues w- whether you fall in one direction or another.
3: Because we were all you know back in the old days, we all were bottle fed. Um, yeah, that's right. Right. And this doesn't, and this doesn't
4: even include like how do these values translate to other parts of the world, right?
3: I forget what part of Genesis that comes from, but <laughs> uh, so you, you also go into one of the the core issues in moderation, or maybe one of the core dilemmas of the internet as we're transitioning from this era of internet utopianism to somewhat internet pessimism, is is harassment. And you talk about um, Dick Costello, Twitter CEO. Um, you have a quote that says, we suck at dealing with abuse and trolls on the platform. And we sucked, we sucked at it for years. It's no secret and the rest of the world talks about it every day. Um, and we've had on our show, and just for way, background, you know, part of my practice is I represent victims of cyber harassment. Mm-hmm. And we've had people uh, pe- people on this show that talk about, about abuse, particularly on Twitter. We there was a yeah. we had someone from Amnesty International who, which actually has a, came out with a report about toxic Twitter and how how Twitter is especially toxic for women, and particularly you know women in public public life, whether it's journalism or elected officials, and um, and so that that is a problem for the platforms.
4: Yeah, I th- <clears throat> I think that. Um... One of the things that we've discovered over the last five or ten years is that um, how these platforms approached, not just the service they were offering, but the but the the sort of boundaries and arrangements that they established for moderation, set the terms for uh, what kinds of activities could emerge on those platforms, which ones could sort of take hold. And I think one of the things that happened, and this is you know partly why certain platforms, you know, suffer from particular problems more than others is that many of the larger platforms, the U S platforms wanted to have a kind of clean approach to this, not just clean rules, but also a kind of clean justification. And that justification in the beginning was a very kind of like embracing both the kind of protection of free speech with a kind of information wants to be free ethos that was drawn from the web, where if they could allow as much communication as possible, then uh, they were being responsible, and good things would happen. And and Facebook interestingly took a kind of different approach that had a much more hands-on saying we're, we we have certain expectations for this platform. And it's not surprising then that we find trouble with Facebook's intervention, and we find trouble with Twitter's non-intervention. Um, the 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 ability to step back and say we would like this to be a speech platform. We get that there are tensions in a speech platform, but we would like to err on the side of not intervening. uh, That may have been very powerful for kind of surprising democratic conversations, revolutionary moments, news circulation, up to the minute political discussion. But it also meant that in that environment, as harassment began to become clearly not just an occasional problem, but a systemic problem, it was very hard for Twitter to kind of uh, switch gears. In, in response to that.
3: You, you have a segment, um, and it's become clear that harassment is not an aberration, but a condition of social media. As Ellen Powell, uniquely familiar with the issue in that former CEO of Reddit and frequent target of harassment and abuse, put it, the foundations of the internet were laid on free expression, but the foundation just did not understand how effective their creation would be for the conditioning and simplification of harassing behavior Mm -hmm. or that the users who were the biggest bullies would be rewarded with attention for their behavior.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things we're figuring out more recently is that in addition to the question of, should platforms have rules and how do they enforce them, which was there from the beginning. And you can criticize the rules they set and criticize the particular decisions they make. We've got two additional problems. One is that as the platforms get more complex and the moderation process gets more complex, it's not just the line you draw, it's the the logistics of how you actually do it. There's a lot of slippage and error and confusion in just the management of that process especially for the biggest platforms the second issue is the one you're bringing up now which is these systems looked like archives they looked like conduits they looked like you went there and sought out what you wanted but increasingly they deliver and select and amplify not in a traditional kind of editorial gatekeeper way the way a newspaper does but in ways that are built into the system and so we're seeing uh, and the platforms are beginning to admit it that certain kinds of content, maybe it's salacious, maybe it's uh, rough, maybe it's harassing, maybe it's uh, uh, clickbait, um, get actually enjoys a benefit from the platform. And is, does the question is, does that increase the obligation for the platform to then be um, intervening? and how do you how do you do that? If it's not the we said no pornography and this is pornography, that's one kind of question. But what do you do if, the platform is subtly conditioning and encouraging and amplifying a behavior that you find toxic or problematic. Right. That's a much harder question, I
3: think. How do you enforce the rule, don't be an asshole? Yeah.
4: And how do you get a platform that says we benefit from engagement and virality to take away a thing that is engaging and viral, but problematic?
3: I mean, there are platforms that do have that rule and, and appear to enforce it. Quora, for example, you know, they require that you be respectful. And and not uh, basically not an asshole. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know Twitter, as you mentioned, because that makes it more viral, uh, seems to uh, relish in that aspect.
4: Yeah, and and Twitter has rules also about uh, verbal harassing behavior. The line they drew is a little bit. Um, leaner. So it had to do with sort of direct threats. And then eventually, in response to some of the criticism, including the report from the ACLU, they expanded that definition. But that's years in and having built a culture where the norms of Twitter are starting to be established. And those norms included um, a, a kind of free reign to be terrible to each other.
3: Right. Um, but it's one thing to have the rules. It's another thing, in which in they may, you know, they've they've adopted over time, but it's another thing to enforce it. We had on our show a journalist who uh, recounted all of the different death threats that she received on Twitter that were found not to violate Twitter rules.
4: Yeah, yeah. No, I think there's a, there's an ongoing question. Um, In that space between what does the rule say and then what actually gets enforced. Um, And that's been especially pointed. I think Twitter's been called out for the question of why what looks on paper like harassment doesn't get shut down more actively. And they've been slow in responding to that criticism. And Facebook certainly took a lot of criticism from ProPublica and other journalists saying, you've got these rules against hate speech, but when we look at what gets taken down, what gets left up, it doesn't seem to fit the criteria that you say you're enforcing. Uh, and that question of of why there's a gap there, you know the easy answer is these are enormous platforms, and so it's immensely difficult to even catch it all. Um, but these, you know, the biggest platforms have put in pretty complicated systems, lots of people, lots of software, lots of oversight. So to me, the question then has to shift to um, how hard even the moderation is, is a scaled up process. What do you do when you set a rule and say, this is how we're going to enforce it, but you need 15,000 people to make the same decision in the same way over and over again? That's a very hard thing to do. And that's not not to let them off the hook. I'm saying we've got to identify where the problem is um, because that's what the pro- platforms are proposing. Is, that's the right solution. This is how they're going to manage the the you know the range of hate speech and the range of harassment and the range of self harm and the terrorist recruiting and everything, and it's not clear that that system can cope with the judgment that it claims to be able to make.
3: Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more with Tarleton Gillespie and Custodians of the Internet. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on Webmaster Radio FM.
2: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
1: Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn
4: more on WPEngine.com.
2: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
3: And we're back and we're talking to Tom Gillespie, author of Custodians of the Internet, Platforms, Content Moderation, and the Hidden Decisions that Shape Social Media. Mm-hmm. Well, hidden no more. So, Tom, uh, before the break, we were talking about you know, how certain platforms dealt with harassment. And but one thing that has come up in the past year or so has been platforms inability to respond or slowness to respond to the use in to promote violence or even genocide so we have the problem of burma and or minimar where it's been used to to go after the rohingya um and we also have i believe it's whatsapp had had some incidents where it was being used to you know spark uh, some fake news was actually leading to people being killed Uh can you kind of walk us through what those those incidents?
4: Yeah. I mean, certainly, there's been a distinct problem for the major u s. platforms that these platforms grew very quickly into other parts of the world where the teams that were trying to handle content moderation or would respond to a problem were uh, not ready to have either the linguistic skills or the cultural expertise that they needed. And a number of the platforms were trying very quickly to gear up in how to do that. But I think that um, it, it, it strikes me that if a company said, um, we're going to move to Myanmar, we're going to open up 100 printing presses, we're going to leave the doors open, and anyone who wants to write anything can walk in the door and print it instantly. By the way, we don't speak the language. Um, right. we, w- we would have serious questions ab- about that move. The The... The jump in is so much more radically uh, intrusive than the preparedness for whatever that might lead to, and and we add to the fact that a number of the companies are were pushing very hard to um, build in their service as a kind of infrastructural offer into countries that um, you know don't have the robust market for telecommunications. So it's not surprising that they grew very fast. They became very uh, potent sources of information and then therefore not entirely surprising that people took advantage of that situation we're seeing that everywhere but these places where the platform was not ready to understand how quickly it was being exploited um, i think the consequences were much more dramatic and 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 terrible in some cases
3: i mean that 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 does show the needs to have some i guess local content moderators because otherwise who can appreciate what they're talking about
4: I think that's a part of it. and the the major platforms in the u s. have sort of, by and large wanted to have they've wanted to stay at the level of having sort of one set of rules as much as they can on a global scale. They want to do moderation on a, a universally. And what they do is they bring in expertise. They look for people with language expertise. I just heard uh, the content policy manager from Facebook say yesterday that they now have a hundred people who speak Burmese. So you know, they're clearly moving in the direction that you're suggesting, where they need the the expertise necessary. That's not the same as having local oversight. True. That's trained oversight, which is better than not. Um, I, but they don't seem as keen to imagine that content moderation for a particular nation or culture should happen within or approximately to that nation or culture. That move I haven't seen. It certainly now, has been proposed by others, but...
3: A, a somewhat maybe instructive or humorous uh, flip side of that debate is how people can adapt speech on social media to evade moderation. And in China, where you know the platform, social media platforms are are heavily monitored and censored, um, there was an incident. A, China, a Chinese dissident, believe it was Wei. His last name was Wei. And uh, and he was blind. You know, he was blind, and he was under house arrest, and somehow managed to escape, which uh, I, I still to this day do not do not know why. You know, you, you, you know late night comics did not have a field day with that. Um, <laughs> And I had this image of, uh, the, you know, the guy, like, feeling the guard's face as he walks out the door. Right. And, and um, any event, so he gets out, and word gets out that he, he's somehow escaped and heading toward the U.S. Embassy. And um, it, it erupts on social media. And so they censor his name. So you can't say, you know, you know Way escaped. So then they, they wrote Blind Guy escaped. And then they started censoring Blind Guy and it just so happened that uh, of <laughs> coincidence of all coincidence, that weekend on Chinese uh, state TV, they were showing the Shawshank redemption. <laughs> and uh, and so once they uh, stopped, you know once they couldn't use blind guy or uh, to describe him, they also shifted. so then they started calling him Shawshank. Yeah. And, and, and then they even uh, then they <laughs> even, started censoring that and uh and so it's (laughs) it's an example of how even with moderation you can people still can find a way to avoid it and sometimes do
4: sure and and i mean i think we see that everywhere we see that the cultural practices right the ways people form communities get information across is always more dynamic than the systems that try to understand it and whether you're uh, we see very similar tactics on the all right when they want to make anti-Semitic critiques of people. And there's a whole revolving set of codes about how to indicate that someone is Jewish that hides the classic slurs, which are obviously things that the reviewers are looking for. But there's all sorts of ways that people um, get creative to sort of shift the conversation, both to be noticed by the system and to be and to avoid the system if they're trying to say something that's questionable or dangerous or, or what have you. So, so in some ways, even the most classic moderation challenges are always a kind of um, you know arms race or a kind of chase where the people who are speaking are going to always outcreate the the kind of companies that are intervening i think that's inevitable which in some ways you know tells you that this is an impossible task or another way to think about it is to say we have to have a little bit more leeway to understand that the platforms are always going to be behind the curve on the on the shifting nature of Hate speech or criticism or humor
3: or what have you. And one issue you address relating to that is Section um, Communications DC Act Section 230, which provides immunity to these type of platforms for the content of third party speech. And you know, you it's it was known as the Good Samaritan exception, and it also provides them immunity for whatever moderation they do do. And you suggest that it, it may be time to revisit that, and 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 put certain responsibilities upon the platforms, um, in, in order to have that immunity. And it's interestingly that you you say that because the author of CDA 230. You know, one of the authors was Senator Ron Wyden. Yes, and uh, he recently came out that he believe he believes we may need to revisit CDA 230 uh, because of the platform's failure to deal with hate speech. He said, you know, that was never the intention that this was going to be allowed freely on the you know on these platforms.
4: Right. I, I mean, I think there's been a debate for a little while around this particular exception. And it often gets very heated because there are people who want to defend 230 as having been a very important protection. It allowed these platforms and the ISPs and the search engines and, and a lot of what we now count as the contemporary web and the contemporary digital space for them to grow without the risk of a single lawsuit kind of bringing them down because someone you know, defamed someone else on their platform. That said, the scale and the complexity and the weaponization of these platforms is clearly expanded in the last decade. Um, And so what I try to propose is not to say this rule has to go away or this rule has to be protected and enshrined, but to say that, okay, so maybe it served its purpose as such, it really provided a kind of shield that allowed these companies to grow, and we clearly see the consequences of that. But it might be time to look back and say, how can we use that safe harbor and its continued presence to create some kind of um, best practices, some, some base expectations that if you're going to be a platform and you're going to enjoy this protection from liability, there are certain obligations that come with that. And I'm struck by the, the, the sense that in the history of telecommunications, we've often, when we give an industry a gift like this, when we say to the telephone companies, you can be local monopolies, even though on paper that looks like a, a trust problem. We're going to grant you that power, but with that come certain obligations, like universal service, you know, right. wiring rural communities. And this one, in some way, didn't it said you have protection from nearly anything that your users say, unless it's federal uh, federal crime. And any way you moderate, pretty much, you don't. That doesn't create any additional liability. So don't moderate or do moderate. In either case, you're you're shielded from you know from from the law in this sense, and and that gift sort of came with no public obligation. Now now a pickier historian would say, well, it was fitted with the Communications Decency Act, which was going to hold platforms responsible for obscenity. And then that was struck down as unconstitutional, right. which, is, which was probably the right decision. But then what we were left with was the gift without the, the matching obligation. To me, I think we could say, all right, you continue to enjoy that liability. With that comes some expectation, sharing best practices, transparency in your moderation process, an oversight counsel that deals with hard cases. There are a lot of things we could then imagine fitting it with, and, and uh, 230 could could hold that, I think. and that sounds going.
3: reasonable. And um, one thing I've often thought about is whether to require if you want the immunity, you have to have uh, some one either disclose your practices, but two, you have to have some way of being contacted so people can go after the people behind the you know defamatory content. Mm-hmm. And uh, whether it's you know you have a registered agent, if you you know or you register you know you have a just like the process for copyrights a dmca agent you have to register and have an agent where people can serve subpoenas to find out who's you know who's behind some of the offensive content
4: yeah i like that idea so long as we are if if we were to imagine some rule like that we would think very carefully about how that could be exploited and some kind of protection that grants the platforms a reasonable right to refuse that under certain conditions, because I think we have seen countries try to use that, that try to pinch the platform or the intermediary to get access to someone who is, say, a whistleblower or a dissident. Right. So as long as that's sort of factored in, and there's a way for the platform to say, we don't feel comfortable with this takedown. We're going to say why, and there's some sort of, uh, you know, sort of higher authority they can appeal to. Then I think that makes a lot of sense, and I like the idea of there being a public ombudsman. So not just I need to know who's doing bad behavior X, but also um, I don't understand why this rule is the way it is, or I don't understand why you say the rule is X, but the practices look like Y, and someone has to be able to stand and speak with and for the platform about that. And some platforms have been better than, than others, but I also like that idea as well.
3: Now, one thing about, there was a recent Facebook hearings before Congress, and there was some grandstanding and abuse of facebook and as part of the process and I, I, I can't say that I have great sympathy for them, but at one point there was a, a mischaracterization of CDA 230 and that was that the platforms were neutral and right. which was per- not the yeah, yeah. What, it's not what the law says <laughs> and it's just playing on this perceived notion that the, the social media platforms are anti-conservative mm-hmm.
4: I think in in some ways, the platforms, the major platforms have done themselves a disservice by def- for so long defending their particular moderation strategies or inaction as neutrality or as impartiality. And the point of the book, one of the points of the book is to say they've always moderated. Those are always value judgments, but they're often cloaked as uh, impartial, even handling. And that's a good principle, but that's a that's hard in practice. Right. So there, the the proclamation that a platform makes that says we are an open platform and we are even-handed and relatively hands-off in moderation, when in fact, a they moderate all the time. B they've designed algorithms that privilege and amplify. Then when people start to critique why something shows up and and they don't. They can hold them and say, you promised to be neutral, which wasn't really a good promise to begin with. It wasn't ever true. And then can level these kind of easy bias attacks that I think are um, misleading, but they're kind of stuck because they've they've held up this promise for so long, when in reality, it was never quite that to begin with.
3: And and the debate over hate speech, I mean, what about Tim Cook's admonition that platforms shouldn't have hate speech? Is that just a a rabbit hole? How do you define it? And I mean,
4: I, I mean, I guess what I'm thinking is that um, trying to um, govern speech is always a rabbit hole, which doesn't mean we don't go down it, right? So, right. If, if we say um, there are some there are some things that we would clearly call hate speech on these platforms, they are pernicious and harmful. We have demonstrated the danger and we would like to do something about it, then you have to raise the next set of questions that are inevitably difficult, which is how do you define it, and according to whose perspective, and can you have an appeals process, and how can that be taken advantage of? That would be true if we were passing an ordinance about it, or if we were passing, you know, if it was a a rule in Hyde Park. Um, the, The difficulty here is that the platforms have taken it upon themselves to promise that they can get rid of hate speech. They've gone ahead and gone through that process of deciding what they think of as hate speech, They've implemented that into a process of review and software detection and oversight. And now we're looking at them and saying, we're not satisfied with how you're handling this. And you are are so large and so important that if you get it wrong, it doesn't just matter to the person who was on the wrong end of it, it matters to society. So the problem is not do you do anything about hate speech, it's how the platforms have already built up a process of governance without, without us recognizing as such.
3: And then the, you have the example of uh, Twitter where at one point Kill the Jews was trending.
4: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and and that's one of those places where both allowing it and in certain ways amplifying it, right? And people who want to say it recognizing that they have a way to be amplified, um, it, it to me says we've reached a point where the question has to be asked in a bigger and more systemic way than saying, hey, platforms do
3: a little better at this or do it a little faster. and. One thing that comes up and when I tell people about the, what I, the work I do on the harassment side okay. is, you know, I often say, before I tell you the story, just remember there was a time you never knew about this side of the internet. You right. know uh, I'm going to show you a side of the internet that is very dark and troubling. And um, there are people who spend their entire day re- in that world. Um, reviewing um, posts of child pornography hate speech you know just really atrocious things for hours after hours and that's one of the issues that you address in your book is yeah. you know the impact on the content moderators and i think there's a documentary coming out that deals with that and and how damaging it has been to them
4: yeah there's definitely a whole set of important questions about the people who do this work. Um, there have been a couple short documentaries. There's a longer one. There's also an excellent book by Sarah Roberts that I've read drafts of, and she's done some close uh, analysis of the people who are doing this work. And they're scattered across the world. They're often working in very precarious uh, labor arrangements, but they're also having to look at, and, at the atrocities that, you're right, you and I don't have to encounter because these platforms moderate at least sufficiently. Um, one of the things that strikes me is that we're asking those reviewers to do two things. One is be exposed to the worst of the worst, right? The truly abhorrent, the truly violent, violent, the horrific. And at the same time, we're at the very next image, have the subtlety to say, this thing is like a gray area case, and I think it violates the rule, or I think it doesn't violate the rule. and And I can't imagine having to be that uh sensitized while also being exposed to some of the worst things you've ever seen
3: right you would think you know logically that there would be some diminishing return that at at a certain point having seen such awful things over a period of time you may not be as outraged by it
4: that's possible i mean we can imagine all sorts of consequences there are definitely people who are complaining about uh, you know emotional effects post-traumatic stress disorder you can imagine becoming desensitized you can imagine becoming Uh, Like it becomes your mission to get rid of it, despite what the rule says. I mean, there are all sorts of problems when you ask human beings not only to review stuff that that is really horrific, but also to act like procedural judges as opposed to having their genuine emotional reaction when, of course, they're having their genuine emotional reaction as well.
3: Yeah, it'd be interesting to study them, which, which of course, is going to be very hard to do since, as you mentioned, they're often dispersed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it's somewhere in the Philippines or somewhere else.
4: Yeah. And, and under layers of NDA. So exactly. Of layers of
3: NDA be. as well as layers of entities. Yes. Right. It's outsourced and um, crowdsourced. And uh, so that I means just a huge challenge. But it would be what what happens to a person who sees that stuff day in, day out? And, and not just as, the, as a content moderator, but as a person. You know, does that affect how they are at home? Do they become more violent? Do they become withdrawn? Do they, you know, what happens to them, I, I think, is is a legitimate question. Because I, yeah. you should, the, obviously, the platform should be thinking about this and trying to protect their employees, and as well as society, if there's some direct, you know, damaging uh, side effects of allowing people to go through this.
4: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we're in a weird way, just waking up to the problem, just becoming aware of what we've asked people to do. We're also becoming aware of the the limits of what software can do for us. Right. Uh, and and yet we're also aware that if we don't address this problem in some way, um, then this stuff sort of runs free and we see the effects when it's un- under-moderated. So in some ways, we can't escape, we can't set the problem aside. But I think you're right. There's so many questions to ask about whether the way we do it now Whether that's the impact on the people who are having to do the work, whether that's the impact on the communities that are getting shut down or the people who are getting harassed despite the rules. Like, we have to become very smart and sort of sober about the implications of this particular arrangement the rules, the procedures, and the impact to say, this may or may not be the right way to do it. This is always going to be a messy problem, but it may not be that we've developed the right solution by just hoping that the platforms will do it the best that they see fit.
3: And and it's not like you can do a study where you show Alex Jones to lab rats (laughs) (laughs) and, and, and see what happens. I mean, that's the problem.
4: That's right. I mean, there are definitely there are definitely some clever researchers out there who can think of kind of quasi-empirical ways. There's great ways to build field experiments where you find people who have been exposed and those who haven't in ways that you didn't choose for them, right? right. That's problematic. But if you can find them having uh, been exposed or not and figure out if you can study those effects, there are ways to do that. That is outside of my expertise. But the 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 question has been made apparent. For me, the interesting thing is the platforms have already built themselves into this position of both promising to moderate and pretending that they don't. And I think we're hitting the limits of that arrangement.
3: And one limit we do have is we're gonna take a short break. So our advertisers, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
1: Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email BRASCO at WMR.FM and get your message delivered now.
2: Rankings. Let top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. The best gavel to gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
3: So we're back and we're talking with Carl Gillespie and um, on the whole issue of content moderation. And uh, before we do, you can check out his background on our show notes, which are at And as usual, follow us on Twitter, and be sure to join us next week when we do uh, our annual Heroes and Zeroes show. And uh, actually, it's not next week; it's still two weeks from now. And uh, which is always a lot of fun. But we're back talking to Tarleton, and right now there seems to be a, a growing debate. Uh, in light of all these data breaches and the, the scandals with Facebook and the, the reactions to Twitter. And, you know, the Internet now is about 25 years old and what we're seeing somewhat of, a, I guess, for lack of a better word, a, a, an evolvement from the Internet utopianism of the early dot-com era to somewhat a, of an Internet pessimism. And uh, I was wondering, where, where are you on that continuum? <laughs> um,
4: I guess I tend to take kind of the media historian view, which is to say that uh, every media industry has gone through a very long process in which we both accommodate it, find our way to fit what we need as a society around it, and mm-hmm. discover the kind of surprising workings and and strange secondary consequences we have had the web and social media for quite a long time in some sense um, but if you think about uh, when the newspaper was 20 years old it was still being you know it was still a one sheet telling you when the ships were arriving uh, the questions about its impact on a public society the kind of ways in which um, the uh, people begin to utilize it and what those kind of secondary consequences are they take a long time for us to figure out. And the other part is, I think there were people who, right from the beginning, recognized the kinds of problems that were showing up in the web. You know, most of us might have gotten on and been marveling at the fact that we could, you know, check the weather and talk to a friend and send an email that took a minute, um, but there were other people that were finding, uh, you know, the earliest forms of online hate speech and were finding, uh, you know, sort of reprehensible content. This, these things were there, uh, and they were already beginning to take advantage of the fact that. The, the, the web itself, was a relatively unhindered mechanism. And, and I think it's taken both the kind of scope and power of the major platforms, both to show us those problems and to exacerbate them and, and bring them into high relief. So optimism and pessimism, I think there are things we can absolutely do. And I think the tide of the conversation is beginning to turn. Uh, even the platforms, I think, are trying to think differently about this. Whether we leave it up to them to to do better or whether we begin to frame a, a sort of a public commitment that we want from platforms and some partnership between how they work and some kind of regulatory encouragement or oversight, that's, I think, the question we're facing now. I think there's definitely possibilities for that question to be answered better than we ever have before, but it's not an easy question.
3: And, you know, in terms of what, what do we want and, you know, what, do we want public policy, you know, our elected officials to step in? I'm just, you know, mindful of the, I think the, the quote that a giraffe is an elephant made by committee or something like that. <laughs> right. right. And, 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 you know, do we want, do we want our Congress to step in knowing that they may not get it right? And then particularly after... Fosta, where you know, that was driven more by electoral politics yeah. than actual, you know. It turns out we were able to shut down the websites that were concerned about without prior to the law even taking effect. So, um, is 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 caution or or um, you know skepticism about re- taking a solution uh, the right approach now?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with the with the hesitation for sure. I'm not convinced that a FOSTA style, you know, this problem is too big to allow 230 protection, so it just has to be treated differently. I don't think that's the right solution either. Um, and in some ways, the the if the question of should platforms remove pornography is 10 or more years old, the question of How are the platforms subtly amplifying misleading propaganda that isn't quite false and isn't quite true, but may have a corrosive effect on how people understand their own civic debate? I think we're so new at that conversation that to imagine a kind of immediate intervention sounds very risky to me. That said, I get I get how concerned people are and the problem feels dire. So we have to we have to lash together together. The the leanest of regulatory interventions, with the highest demand on the platforms and a lot of expertise, we're not always good at doing that.
3: And 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 also, given that, so a lot of members of Congress don't understand the platforms. Right. You know, it'd be like you, you know, your your child is sick and you take them to a vet. Right. Uh, I mean there's there's a possibility he'll get it right i mean i, I think they do have to, they get messed up but there's also you're you're somewhat alarmed by the possibility they could get it pretty wrong
4: no i think that's right i think that's right but i guess my my greatest optimism is that there have been groups whether that's sort of civic society whether that's academics whether that's journalists who have been investigating this problem actively for a couple of years 5 years 10 years and i do think there's a body of expertise there how to get that to translate into policy and how to get policymakers to take those more subtle approaches that i have you know that's a that's a tricky procedural question but i agree what we don't want to do is impose a kind of presumptive regulation that's as bad or as worse or worse than the platforms trying to do it the best they can themselves
3: so we only have a few minutes left is yeah. is um one do you want to tell us what you know we're working on next or do you have any appearances that you wanna plug at this point?
4: I don't particularly, I'm really eager to have people read the book. So if this interests them, the, you know, we've ranged in the conversation, but it's also a book that's designed to say, I keep hearing the news, but I don't know much about how this works. It'll also tell you that part of it, just to understand how the platforms do this work, how they got in this position, and then raises some of the questions that, uh, that we've been talking about today. So the hope was that it does this work of saying, so often in the public, we debated around a specific platform or one blow up, right? right. Is it's Jones supposed to come down? Does Twitter handle this correctly? What did Facebook say today? And I want to raise the question and say, this is true for all platforms. It's true for all intermediaries. And it's in some ways always been true about media. Um, but we have to ask the question again and we have to ask it in a way that's attuned to how platforms work, their algorithmic work, their policy work, and the reality of how they organize information. And in some ways we can learn about the social media environment we've produced by kind of holding on to the question of content moderation because it's this weird tension between what platforms promise and how they actually function.
3: Well, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a great pleasure talking to you on this, and it is an important topic, and the book is Custodians of the Internet, Platforms, Content Moderation, and the Hidden Decisions that Shape Social Media, Tarleton Gillespie, and you can follow him on Twitter at TarletonG. And we have links to his website as well. So definitely check out the book, Tarleton. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy holidays to you. And good luck promoting the book. It's uh, an important and uh, informative read. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thanks. That's all we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Um, Again, we'll be back with another live show in two weeks talking about our heroes and zeros for 2018 and what may be our last show for some time. And so please join us then. Until then, this is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week. Check us out at internetlawcenter.net. We're a full-service internet firm. Everyone have a great week. Happy holidays.